again to today's episode of Pulling the Strings podcast, as always, powered by Puppet. My name is Ben Ford. I lead our community and our ecosystem teams here at Puppet. I'm pretty active in our community as Ben for TK. We may have run across each other every now and then. Today, we're doing something a little bit different for us. We're holding a roundtable sort of panel discussion. So you'll hear maybe a little bit less of my voice and a little bit more of the guests. Maybe that's a good thing. Usually, I do a quick introduction of the guests right now, but with the, this format, We'll sort of do it more hot potato style, uh, kind of a quick introduction to speed things up a little bit. I'll just sort of go around the panel quickly and ask everybody to introduce themselves. Because this is the first recording of 2023, we'll also add on something that we're excited about changing or something new or interesting that, that we're looking forward to in the new year. So let's go ahead and start off with my old coworker, Nigel. You want to kick us off? Absolutely. So, hey, Nigel Kirsten, field CTO at Puppet. Um, I was actually just looking something up there to try and make sure I got the pronunciation right. I just discovered this really slightly obscure version of broccoli called Broccolo, Broccolo Fioloria from Italy that got sent to me in a veg box. And so I decided this year I'm going to be excited about exploring the rest of the species of Brassica oleracea. I also just learned this year that the broccoli family is much larger than we uh, realize it is. Like broccoli and cauliflower aren't really that much different from each other, even though they look uh, very different. And I have Wikipedia right here in front of me, so I can tell you that the family includes cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, Chinese broccoli, and collard greens, which I think is pretty amazing. And if you ever make your own broth at home, uh, do not use any of these plants in them because it'll make your broth taste very bad. Welcome to cooking with DevOps platform engineering style. <laughs> You want to pick the next person to go? Um, let's go with Casper next. Sure. So I'm Casper. I'm the CEO of Humanitech. We do a bunch of tools at this point for to build internal developer platforms. And in 2023, I am very excited about horses, actually. I, I just moved to the countryside and I, <laughs> I'm rediscovering my love for horses. I remember when I was a kid, I rode a horse one time and I fell off. And maybe many years later, I should uh, I should be getting back on a horse, but I don't know. That's that's a big deal to me. That sounds very exciting. Fly to Berlin. I'll 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 help you master this. <laughs> that sounds great. Who's next? Fatih. Hi everyone. My name is Fatih Amanji. I work at the Linux Foundation, leading the Continuous Data Foundation, which is an open source community hosting uh, some of the popular open source continuous data projects such as Jenkins, Tecton, Spinnaker, CDMS, and Persia. And for 2023, uh, I will try to reduce my caffeine consumption uh, because I drink out of coffee and I will start drinking more Cortado because it has higher milk. It sounds great. Are you drinking coffee today? I had twice. Yeah. In Sweden, <laughs> we drink out of coffee. So that is something I need to improve and reduce my consumption. Right on. Well, that leaves Ronan. Hi everyone, Ronan Keenan here. I am Director of Research at Puppet and Perforce. Uh, this year I'm looking forward to traveling a lot more. So top of my list is to get back home to Dublin and Ireland and visit uh, certainly more than I have in recent years. So that's, uh, that's something I'm very much excited about. I think we're all excited to travel a little bit more. I have my first uh, conference planned for just a couple months from now in, in Ghent. And I haven't been there since uh, 2020. Very much looking forward to it. Well, you should both swing by London give it, if you're going to be in the area. We'll get to actually hang out. I like that idea. Maybe you can come with me to uh, to Belgium, uh, Ronan, and then we can all go hang out with uh, Nigel for a couple of days. Yeah, we can do a, a quick European tour. <laughs> beer, beer and fruits. 
Well, it wouldn't be fair to ask everybody to uh, to say the one fun thing about 2023 without doing uh, one myself. Um, Mine's a little, little blase. I, I, uh, my partner and I picked up uh, the motorcycle habit over pandemic. So this is still kind of new to us, but it's a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to spring weather around here, like the ice and wet soggy leaves to make for real treacherous riding over the winter. So that's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to uh, in the uh, coming months. Let's go ahead and kick off our panel. Um, sort of set, set the stage, though. I, th- I think that maybe the, the obvious first question is let's just sort of start off by maybe could someone explain like I'm five, uh, just what is platform engineering anyways? Maybe Nigel would be a, a, a good person since you uh, talked about Soda earlier. Yeah, so how about I'll, I'll jump in with the definition we did in Soda, and I, I don't want to make this sound super prescriptive in a way because I think there's lots of other folks in the panel who could append to it and augment that. So I'll give you the sort of tight definition we worked with, which is like, first, let me start with the preface that platform, we are terrible in technology at naming things. And the word platform has been used and renamed and abused in the last, you know, 27 years that I've been working in tech, at least, um, to mean many, many different things. But so here, what we're talking about is delivering services, generally infrastructure, but often sort of higher level ones as well, to your development teams. And basically, if you think about this as, the discipline of designing and building self-service capabilities for your developers. The goal here is generally to minimize cognitive load um, and to enable your software to be built more quickly um, and in a less frustrating manner. The big thing that's sort of been different about previous attempts at platforms, which have been around for quite a while, is that folks are taking a product mindset to this. They're not just building capabilities inside their organizations that people have to use. They're treating their users as a market and building products, trying to design things that they actually want to use and that they keep continuing to invest in. Um, so that's sort of what we worked with for the State DevOps report. But, you know, this is a big space and very keen to hear other folks. So if I can chime in really quickly, I, I think that's completely uh, spot on. I'm always now, as I, and I mean, Nigel, we've all been talking about this for years now and, you know, it's evolving, our understanding is evolving. I think that a pure focus on cognitive load and the the developer side and the self-service element always implies that it's about, I need something, how do I get it? Uh, How can I get things that help me work without having to ask other people? And I think there is a second very important element to all of that, and that is standardization and building systems, which are platforms, if you want, that drive standardization by design. So I'm a developer. I am building something. Developer self-service, the aspect of developer self-service helps me in on the day one operation. I need a database. I need this. I need this. But then if I'm following certain paths, the systemic setup drives standardization. By me using the system, I am streamlining and standardizing. I'm, the system itself keeps the, um, the, the, the difference in configurations, for instance, the config drift low, all of these things. And it gives me golden paths that make it easier for the entire organization to actually manage and maintain the engineering or the software landscape. So that's 
increasingly important in, in my personal definition of platform engineering that it's not only day zero, but it's actually day zero to day end is the full thing. This is fantastic. Like, I think what you've done there is you've unpacked a bunch of the sort of assumptions and benefits in that really sort of somewhat too terse definition that I gave there. But standardization is totally it. And I think one of the ways I really like the way you talked about standardization by design and golden paths is that there's sort of an old school IT standardization and centralization mentality, which was about we're going to define what everyone has to do and then make them do it. But I think the difference we see around platform teams that you were getting at in your description there was that platform engineering is about taking a more agile product-like development focus of going, well, let, we need to standardize, but it needs to be something that works for everyone, that's flexible enough. But also, as you say, the virtues of the benefits of standardization are for the whole organization, not just the individual developer, which I think is missed in that sort of tight definition I had. I sort of think, and this is one of the interesting topics around this whole space I find, is that good platform engineering is about balancing sort of local optimization for the individual users and global optimization, which is things like standardization. Yeah, and it seems like it would, it would make sense too to make that uh, definition flexible enough so that that standardization moves along with the needs of your users and your customers and your company so that you're not holding yourselves to the same golden image you were pushing out four years ago. You're, you're growing with the, the, your company needs. Totally. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's, everyone's always talking about feedback loops when it comes to platform engineering. And just like if you're building a product for users, you need some kind of a feedback loop. You know, what do people actually think about it? This is why we get all those endless surveys at the end of using all the SaaS products these days. And Every time you go through a customer interaction, you're trying, you're being prompted on your feedback because it actually matters in terms of the uptake. And this is one of the biggest failings I see in particularly large organizations is that there's absolutely no feedback loop between the producers of a platform or the operators and the consumers of it. They're just, they often have no way of actually talking to each other. And without that sort of feedback loop, you can't be sure that what you're building is actually solving people's problems. And I think what's what's really important to, to state is that you cannot not build a platform, right? You cannot not do platform engineering. Um, people always ask, like, how do we get started with platform engineering? The thing is, you know, you're already doing it. The question that you need to answer for yourself is, do you want the platform to basically dominate you? Or do you want to shape the platform actively, right? If you just have a bunch of CI scripts and Jenkins and like a huge amount of different things tied together and uh, lots of version control systems. Um, and you have these large deployment infrastructure setups. Then, I mean, you sort of have a, ha you have a platform, right? But I think what platform engineering is advocating for us to say, okay, how can we bind these things into an experience that if the developer chooses to follow that experience and, you know, it's 2023 now, we're not forcing them but we're giving them we're nudging them to do that well if they follow that then they get certain benefits and that is you know self-service standardization by design speed and delivery um, and all of these things but you cannot not have a platform right the question is you know do you shape it as a product i i just want to add something what you just said caspar like how do we start with platform engineering and as you mentioned like many organizations they're already doing some kind of platform like if you think about developers, some developers, they just do the same thing over and over again and they realize it is boring and they start automating 
things, they start creating tools, they start turning those tools into services, sharing them with their teammates, which get used by other, you know, teams within the organization. So I think the point, like the standardization alignment or streamlining is pretty critical here because doing such things, they are pretty important. Developers teams coming with these ideas and coming up with platforms themselves, but putting them, putting something around these things and making them more, how to say, visible and shared across the organization is pretty critical as well, which is like standardization alignment aspects. I think that's a really good point because there's often, and this might be my ops background and sort of enterprise IT background, but there's often this sort of perception that, you know, development teams are all cowboys who all want to do everything different ways and they're going to keep throwing new problems and ways of working. And it's the poor ops people and IT folks and security and audit and compliance who are trying to keep a lid on it all. But in my experience, like it's it's immensely frustrating when you're a developer in a software, in a team and there's a million different ways to do everything and you don't have a standardized release process or testing frameworks. And there's often a desire, particularly once you start moving between development teams and org when you're building software, that standardization to a certain point is really good for the de individual developers as well. So one of the things that always struck me is that if you look at you know, the teams that we all think are you know, amazing, like the, the Google engineering team, and I always thought of the GitHub engineering team and organization, the level of standardization, the level of abstraction, if you want to use that term, I mean, this is a very, very loaded term, but let's use it, is very, very high. And I was always wondering, how, how is that possible? You know, these great engineers that are actually self-selecting to deal with that level of abstraction or embrace that. And I zoomed in a little bit, had a look at this. Why is it possible that these teams have it and then everybody else doesn't seem to want to have that? And what I found interesting is that great platform setups are, are not setups that abstract you from something, that you know keep you away from something. But those are opaque abstractions. They're always only an offer. You know, you're like make a contract with me and you get certain benefits, but you don't need to do that contract. Or, And if you follow my golden path, our systems will tell you exactly what happens under the hood. There is nothing hidden from you. It's very clear. If you need something, we will give you the something. The platform will match that automatically, but you know exactly how this was matched, why this was matched. There is no, it's never a black box. The design is always very mindful of the human. In my experience, software developers do not have an issue with being abstracted away. Our whole industry is a has a history of, you know, repeatedly moving from one abstraction to the next, but you can never take context. So no abstraction at the expense of um, context, as long as you give context and you that careful and mindful, people are actually more than happy to use great delivery systems and to comply to a high de degree of sanitization because it ultimately benefits them. I really like what you just said there because you, you just sort of hit the nail on the head. I think of, you know, we talk about self-service and for those of you who are listening, who came from sort of more traditional sort of enterprise background, we've had ideas like self-service software catalogs for a while, but the problem with them was always that they were a black box, as Casper was just saying, that, you know, abstractions are really powerful, but when you click a button and it's fantastic when it works, but when it's not quite doing what you want and it's a complex series of tasks and you have no insight into what's going on, 
that's not reducing cognitive load. That's just increasing it. Yeah, one of my first uh, engagements with Puppet um, when I was uh, pro services shoot over a, a decade ago was actually building an internal developer platform for one of our clients. And it had all of those drawbacks you're talking about. It was point and click, but if it didn't work, it was you had to go into the, the Git repository and fiddle with a bunch of code to figure out what was going on. And uh, no surprise, it you know never actually went anywhere because it wasn't serving the needs of the the actual users of it. So this is this is not anything new at all. This is this is a very very old idea. Um, maybe could we talk about some of the the like the history and origins behind this and why it seems like it's it's rising in popularity so quickly uh, now? Like what is what has shifted now that has made platform engineering more popular than it was five years ago? for example. I think we've all been introduced to platforms in the form of the big cloud provider platforms. I think that's a huge driving factor. People have gotten used to self-service in all sorts of roles inside technology, and they've gotten used to being able to have that service provided to them in, in a way that feels much more like a product. Also, I think, you know, ops teams have been massively overloaded. Developers have been getting frustrated. I think I think it's just a convergence of a whole bunch of things. But for me, the cloud providers is a really big part of it. Yeah, I think it's the this evolution of cloud native. If you there is no that's not backed by data in any ways, I and mean, you're just I'm just you know spitting in the air. But if you're looking at the you, you just what I did is I lo just looked at the uptake of container adoption as a proxy for cloud native adoption. Um, you can see that you know early start in uh, 2006, and then you can see the first teams go mainstream cloud native in the early 10s. And the real wave actually hits 17, 18, 19, um, 20. And then what I'm observing in individual organizations is that they go into the cloud native world and then you have that paradigm of you build it, you run it, and everything is new and shiny and cloud native for some reason is supposed to be easy. And then with a lack at a delay of four to five years, they start realizing, hey, you know, you build it, you run it, doesn't really work if you let every single React developer do everything with Terraform. People are overwhelmed. Delivery speed is going down. People are frustrated. Takes a while, takes a couple of reorgs. And then they realize, ah, that doesn't really work. You can't just throw everything at everybody. You need to structure things. You can't overwhelm people. You're actually abusing their mental health to a certain degree by telling them, hey, you're now doing everything. You're introducing shadow ops where senior people now have to help juniors. You know, And in my interpretation is that if you just take the lag function of cloud native and you delay that by four or five years, you have the uptake in platform engineering and that's or in internal developer platforms. And yes, We've been speaking about this for years, but we were somehow the early adopters. But now the enterprise is cloud native for a while, and they're realizing that it's just not working. Yeah, this complexity, the cloud native microservice and so on. I think, like, if we think about like ten years or more ago, things weren't as complex as they are today. Like currently, the developers now they uh, now need to deal with many tasks to build and run highly complex distributed and interconnected systems. And this is again, taking us to very first things we discussed like cognitive load and so on. And as Kaspar highlighted, like the effects are now becoming more visible 
and organizations are trying to perhaps reduce the load from their development team so they can focus on value adding activities or business logic more than like infrastructure automation and such things and i yeah just repeat what i just said like i think complexity is a big factor why platform engineering is becoming more critical Casper, you said a moment ago that uh, we didn't really have a whole lot of data uh, backing some of these ideas up. Um, I'm curious, uh, uh, Ronan, uh, you just ran a lot of uh, analysis on, on a lot of data that, that we have. Do, are you seeing trends? Are you seeing things that might be able to back up some of these ideas that, that people are saying or, or maybe contradict? Yeah, exactly. I was just going to jump in there and say that like one of the, the key drivers for platform engineering, at least from what our data is showing, is that it's delivering on its benefits. So there's a huge positive reaction to platform engineering among organizations that have adopted it. So for our upcoming SODO report, um, we did a survey of organizations that have adopted platform engineering. And really, there's widespread positive sentiment. And that's because it's delivering on its, on its promises. So a couple of minutes ago, we've, we've been discussing about standardization. And we've seen that the majority of organizations that have adopted platform engineering are seeing increased standardization due to platform engineering being adopted. And then as well, the majority of organizations, they're seeing increases in speed. And I think also going back to a, a point Nigel made about the whole organization benefiting from platform engineering. Um, yes, our data is backing that up as well, because we asked our survey respondents, well, who are the main beneficiaries of platform engineering? Like, is it individual developers, certain development teams or infrastructure teams? And actually, the top answer was that the whole organization is the key beneficiary from platform engineering. So we are seeing it live up to the promises of standardization, widespread benefits, increased speed. So, so far, so good. Uh, really, our, our survey respondents are almost unanimous in saying that platform engineering, it's certainly a step in the right direction. I think what's really interesting, Ronan, about those findings is if we contrast them with the early, first few years of the State of DevOps report, where we're focusing on DevOps adoption inside the enterprise, where this, the picture really wasn't that clear. There was a lot of optimism, a lot of goodwill at the beginning, but we weren't seeing the concrete benefits. And it, it took a lot longer for folks to, I think, work out how to deliver those benefits to the whole organization rather than just a small team of dev and ops folks and a few others sort of working together. I This was the biggest surprise for me for the findings this year. Like anecdotally, I've seen lots of sort of really good results, but to see the data actually backing this up and that people are seeing really concrete results from what is a relatively young movement in in our space for a lot of folks. It was just really, it was really good to see. Yeah, and I think what's particularly interesting is the majority of organizations that we surveyed, um, they've only adopted platform engineering within the last three years. So, and even within that pretty short timeframe, you know, the benefits are real. For example, like nearly 70% are seeing an increase in development speed and 42% of those organizations say that speed is increasing a great deal. So that basically means it, it's very noticeable. It's not just incremental, but it's actually having a, a real impact. So um, certainly the results are real. Um, I mean, it's not fair to say like what I don't want to paint a picture of is that every single organization that has adopted platform engineering is saying, hey, it, it's saying, yeah, we're seeing amazing results. Um, there is a subset of maybe 25% or so of organizations who do say that, yeah, you know, it's not really performing quite 
to the level that we'd expected or hoped. But by and large, um, for the majority, they are seeing those real improvements. And I, I have a, I'm, I'm regularly doing platform engineering workshops and have a lot of enterprise people in there. And we're looking at how do you approach this? How do you, and I'm always asking them in those sessions, um, how do they, where do they start, right? I mean, this feels like such a daunting thing. You have this large engineering team and now you need to start platform engineering. What are the things that you actually start with? And I think, you know, because that space is so young, there are a lot of fallacies people run into. There are a lot of things, like a lot of teams start with things that feel most obvious, like, hey, it would be so great to have a shiny UI to create a new microservice. And then you go ahead and ask them, okay, well, how often do you create a new microservice? Well, like um, 20 times a year. Ah, okay, so how do you do it right now? Well, we go into GitHub and then we press a button to do a template and then we execute that template and then we have the new service. Ah, okay, so now the last six months in platform engineering, what did you do? Well, we used this new JS open source thing and it's um, we now have a UI and you press a button and then, uh, okay, and what happens if you press the button? Well, the button does a call to the GitHub API and they actually clone a template and then well, so you spend six months actually doing the same thing you do right now. And I think what I want to say is that because this space is so immature, if you want, um, a lot of folks are still struggling a little bit to understand where to start, how to prioritize, how to do the things that really drive return on investment rather than the things that might look great for product management or the C-level. Um, and so I think we just there's still just a lot that we have to learn as an industry on how to actually approach this and really treat things as a product. That was all so much good stuff there. Casper, um, there was one thing I wanted to ask you, like in your experience doing those sort of workshops and things, what are some of those common mistakes you're seeing folks make? Like well, if, you, if you were to give, you know, a, a top three list of, hey, don't do this. Yeah, so there is a, I actually, you know, this is something that is, is so important for me. I have a top 10 list that I, that I keep repeating, um, top 10 fallacies in platform engineering, wrote a longer uh, piece on it. But the, the top three things are really um, the, um, is number one, the prioritization fallacy, that you don't actually sit down before you start working and you do user research and you ask your engineers and you don't only ask one engineer, but you ask many different engineers, okay, what are the things in your daily workflow that you really struggle with? And the thing is, those aren't the most obvious ones. Like as a hint, it's usually not the creation of a microservice, which feels obvious. It's usually not the onboarding of a developer. Because if you look at the lifespan of an application versus how much time do they actually spend on creating this, it's just a very, very short period of time that you're optimizing. So the first one is the prioritization fallacy. And I'm always telling people, hey, sit down, do force ranking, do user research, and then start. Number two is the visualization fallacy. There's a tendency, and I'm seeing that everywhere, to say, hey, we're just visualizing stuff in fancy dashboards, and then we believe that something miraculously improves. And you're seeing very, very low ROI um, on, on that one. And then the third one is um, the, the everything and everybody at once fallacy. Like people starting to build these gigantic platforms that can do VM all the way to Lambda and, you know, the developers don't have to think at all and it's so great and all, that almost always fails. And so I'm always saying, okay, prioritize the right way. Don't do the most obvious stuff. Take a step back and look at 
one technology, the lowest tech denominator, if you want, and build something small that's great and that impacts the the daily work of a first lighthouse team, make them your champions, advocates, and then let them pull the organization and iterate as a product from there. And so I, I would say those are the, the, the top three. So I have kind of a loaded question uh, for you all then, I guess, is platform engineering sort of, could we consider it to be like a natural evolution of DevOps or is it more like a paradigm shift or a pendulum swing or reaction or something very, very different? How would you characterize it? I'm just going to say really quickly, I think it's it's a natural evolution, but it's also a bit like, it's a bit of a category error to compare the two. I think it's shared, there's a lot of common DevOps philosophies that were in DevOps that are required to do platform engineering well. But I also think those philosophies are required to just do technology well inside a technology company. Um, so I think they're different, um, but there there is a view that there's a natural evolution that at large scale to succeed, you're going to have to work out how to centralize certain capabilities so that you can more efficiently deliver them to more people. Yeah, and certainly uh, following on from Nigel's point, we do see in our, our survey data this year that there are certainly strong linkages between platform engineering and DevOps. For example, when we, we look at what are the most common roles that are making up a platform team, DevOps roles are number one, they come out on top. Um, even talking about increased standardization as a key benefit, um, you know, we've seen in previous research that we've done over the years how standardization has been identified as a key part of the DevOps evolution. So there are several linkages there between the two. And we did also ask in our survey about the explicitly about the relationship between DevOps and platform engineering. And we saw over 90% of our respondents said that uh, platform engineering is helping them to better realize the benefits of DevOps. So there's certainly a view among organizations that have adopted platform engineering that platform engineering can be a vehicle at least to to get more out of the, the promises of DevOps. Very complementary practices. Yeah, I think that's so spot on, Ronan. Like, I think of DevOps like a philosophy. I think of platform engineering as a practice. So, you know, it's like, I think that that in in my inner sorting um, puts it puts it best. So, what do you think that we have to look forward in platform engineering? Are there are new areas to be explored or new ideas to to uh, flesh out? I'm going to jump in really quickly with that, which I think is everyone's always talking about infrastructure in terms of platform engineering. What I'm really excited to see is what are those higher level services people start delivering. Just as Amazon came out with EC2, everyone got really into infrastructure as a service, but a lot of the creative explosion has happened on much higher level services. And I'm really curious to see what happens in the industry around those. I think one of the big things that we're still owing people is reference architectures, what an internal developer platform looks like. It looks different in every single organization. There is not the one, otherwise you have a platform as a service. But there are certain repeatable patterns. And one of the things that I really want to spend a lot of time on is looking at these reference architectures, um, publishing them for people to actually build their own platforms with, with these things. I think we are a little, everybody's a little too, um, I'm showing you this one thing and what to do, this one thing and what to do. I'm really looking forward to stuff that says, hey, this is how a golden path looks. We're, we're, we're using these buzzwords, right? And, and I mean, I'm, I've been heavily using those buzzwords for the last um, 
years, but we're not very precise in how could an actual implementation look like. And I think at this point, I've seen dozens and hundreds of them. You know, they are there. There are repeatable patterns. The, the platforms do, there are a lot of similarities. And I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward to actual content product content around these reference architectures. Yeah, from my perspective, I think like platform engineering enables developers to do what they are best in doing, like developing software and the delivery aspects, like software flow aspects are equally critical as well. So I think we will probably need more focus on continuous delivery aspects and, you know, we need to explore these aspects more because it becomes very difficult for developers to deal with, you know, hundreds of pipelines, thousands of lines of YAML files when they are creating their pipelines and so on. I believe platform engineering will help with these aspects as well, software flow. Yeah, and I, um, I don't want to advertise uh, products, but it's an open source thing that we just put out. Um, and it was more of a site thing. Uh, it's called SCORE, like a workload specification that allows developers to just in an, on an abstract level describe how their how their architecture looks like, and then it's actually localized if you want, and the actual executable configurations are created. And I'm just mentioning this because the the uptake is so crazy. So we put that we've been using it for years. We said okay, this should be open source. We put it out November sixth. We started communicating it November fifteenth, and it has just surpassed I think seven and a half thousand stars uh, now which is, I don't know, six, six, seven weeks. And I'm saying that because that shows how much attention, how much traction um, there is on these higher level abstraction topics. Where do we go get it, Casper? Uh, it's score.dev, like the scoring on a, on a musical sheet. Fantastic. Well, this roadmap looks very, very exciting. I am really looking forward to seeing what comes up uh, next. Uh, see where we go in the future. Uh, this is a real exciting time. Uh, like I mentioned briefly uh, earlier, I'm going to Config Management Camp uh, in Ghent in just a, uh, about a month. And one of the interesting trends that I noticed is that a very, like this is a, a historic long-lived uh, conference. We've always talked about configuration management. And this year, a lot of the uh, uh, talks are, are kind of leading towards uh, uh, platform engineering, talking about thing, some of the very same things we're talking about here. It's like the, the whole industry is making the shift with us. And it's so much opportunity for, for things in the future. So as we close up here, I think kind of one of the, the, the big trend that I'm hearing, the thread that I'm hearing here is that platform engineering isn't like a brand new kind of DevOps or, or new ideas. It's sort of like natural evolution of how we think about our tooling and about our platforms and like this little shift in how we think about our own customers and users and then the needs of their customers and users and how like the, the things that we can do that can enable this entire ecosystem and help make everybody's life a little bit easier by giving them the tools that they need and they want to use. Uh, to standardize on better platforms for everybody. And uh, just a, a, a plug here, of course, you can read about it in the annual State of DevOps report that Nigel uh, mentioned and uh, Ronan mentioned earlier coming up very soon. Uh, Ronan, do you have an idea of when people can uh, expect to, to hear from anything about that? Yeah, our target launch date is January 18th, so not too far away. So yeah, we've uh, lots of in-depth findings and results that we're really excited to share. 
that is very exciting. And hopefully we'll have this podcast published before then and, and, and people can still look forward to it. Uh, right. Um, let's, uh, let's hope on that. And anyways, that is a wrap for today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And thanks all of you for your fascinating uh, ideas and, and insights here. I found myself like scribbling down notes frantically, trying to remember all of the brilliant things that, that, that you all said and that I want to, to remember. Um, but I guess that's what the transcript is for. So uh, this will be one to go back and, and read the transcript very carefully to, and get some of these uh, statements back out there. So thanks everybody for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thanks everybody. We'll see you all next time on Pulling the Strings podcast powered by Puppet.